Let's look into this key chapter together now. It's not an easy chapter, but some things in it are very plain. What's the first thing? My first main point is about the greatest privilege. Look in Romans 3 and verse 1 and 2. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. Now there's no higher privilege, no higher privilege that can come to any human being than to be spoken to by God. People boast that they've heard some important person. When I was growing up, Princess Alexandria came to my little hometown. And not long after that, Prince Charles was there. He was a teenager. And here in Australia, and he toured lots of parts of Australia, and he came. Do you know that some people he even spoke to? Same with Princess Alexandria. People kept saying they not only saw the princess, or they not only saw Prince Charles, but that he spoke to them. Just think of it. God, the King of all glory, speaks to people today. And he's speaking to you through the Bible. You've been entrusted with the very words of God. You not only can see and know of him, but that you can be spoken to him individually. He knows you and he speaks to you now. God himself. And this is so, so wonderful. What does Deuteronomy 8 verse 3 say? Man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. These are the words Jesus uses against Satan, aren't they? What words? We live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. These words give meaning and life to everything we know. To show you what I mean, I'll put it the other way around. If the greatest privilege is to be spoken to directly by God, then it's equally true to say that there is no greater loss than that you can have God stop speaking to you. The worst judgment Amos sees coming to the Jews is that there should be a famine of hearing the words of God. Amos 8 in verse 11. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of God. If you were to go to a place like France today, I'm told there's 40,000 towns in France where there's no gospel pulpit. None at all. Where people don't hear the Bible, anybody preaching from the Bible. 40,000 towns in France like that. It's a famine for hearing the words of God. And this is a place that knows better. Some of the greatest people of all time that God has ever raised up. Calvin came from France. He's not the only one. It's a terrible thing to happen. It could happen to you. That your Bible gets closed and you no longer want to open it. You don't want to be in a place where anybody talks about the Bible. You don't want to meet up with anybody who knows the Bible. There's nothing more appalling than not to be spoken to by God. 
This has great significance for every true Christian. You feel miserable if you feel you're losing contact with God. There is nothing more terrible than to feel that you are abandoned by God. We think of the darkness of Vanuatu. It was called the Hebrides, New Hebrides, before the missionaries came. You can read the wonderful story. It's on the table over there, John Payton. What was it like with the people before the missionaries came? What did the men do to make their women do all the cooking and all the work? It's unspeakably awful. They would take a couple of women and cannibalize them. They would eat them. And that would make the other women cooperate. That's the darkness of not having the Bible. People think the noble savage, how terrible it was to be a savage. It wasn't noble in the slightest. Explore the facts for yourself. Where the Bible is not known, dreadful, dreadful things go on. And women and little children are the victims. A famine for healing the words of God. For these Jews, Paul says, was it, was it like for you? God has spoken to them. More than that, God communicates the details of his covenant love. The main focus of what God says to the Jews in your Old Testament is the coming of Christ Jesus. And this too is your immense privilege this morning. This is not an academic matter for discussion. We know that God speaks to us through the Bible. The highest privilege of the Jew is that he or she has the Old Testament. Do you realize the advantage and privilege that you have, not just the Old Testament, but that you have the New Testament scriptures as well? Do you realize the advantage of having an open Bible? Let me ask you a further question. Do you realize that the Bible is the word of God. Is it just another book? I'm not talking about the print in the Bible. I'm not talking about the size of the Bible or the shape of the Bible. I'm talking about the ideas that are there. Do you know I've worked with little children in public schools for the last 16, 17 years and I teach them scripture and so few of them have ever heard a word much ever about the Bible. Some of them it's consuming passion for them. They just got to tell other people. They go to their families. They go to a special occasion for Easter and one little boy can't help himself. He's telling this young girl who's 16 about her son Ezekiel. He says, do you know that word's in the Bible? That's in the Bible name. He says, do you know about John 3.16? He finds himself at a family occasion telling everybody the gospel. It's so tremendous, the words that are in the Bible. This is no ordinary book. Here are the very words of God. Do you show that this, you really believe this is true by reading your Bible, by studying your Bible, by digging into the Bible and getting the ideas out for yourself, by investing your time praying over the Bible? Do you read the Bible just as a matter of habit? How do you approach the Bible? Do you say, here is God speaking to me and I'm reading this book because God knows me. He delights in me and he's communicating directly to me. What is the use of our getting excited about the missionaries going to places like Vanuatu to take the trip to dark places where people get converted if we will not use our own Bibles in our own homes and in our own lives? 
For children in Christian families, you have this awesome knowledge. You have this greatest of great privileges in being under the sound of the Bible, in being familiar with the Bible, in coming under the conviction of the truth of the Bible. It's a marvellous thing to be a child of Christian parents. For any parent here today, you have this trust. The very words of God. Will it later be said about you, I thank God I had a Christian dad and a Christian mum that always concerned that I would hear God speaking to me? And then all of us should have great compassion for little children who are denied this opportunity. When you hear of your pastor going to a local public school and you know the time that he goes, you pray for him and pray for people like myself as I work in public schools. Here are all these little children with impressionable hearts that God knows and that God will meet with as they hear the few little words that I'm able to tell them of the Bible or somebody else is able to tell them. New South Wales is a place where the public schools and other places are still open for us to share the Bible. Pray and pray some more and pray again and pray often and pray fervently. My second main point is about speaking back to God. Now remember this book of Romans is a court scene. That's why some of us find it a little bit difficult. And Paul is taking us in hand and he's showing us this court scene and he's showing us that we are in trouble. Just like this family in the magazine. Terrible, terrible trouble. Worse than being bogged up to the axle and no food for days on end. The dad loses... 13 or 14 case while he's there with no food and his little boy says, Dad, you've got a wallet. Go and buy some food. It's very hard to explain. We can't do that. We've got to stay here. We are in the same predicament, Paul is saying. A terrible, terrible, awful tragedy and we're stuck. And yet we don't want to do anything about it. We don't even see our problem. In fact, we want to speak back to God and Paul says, Don't you dare. Verse 19, chapter 3 of Romans and verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says that, that it says to those under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. That's the point of chapter 2 and that's the point of chapter 1. And that's the point of these early verses in chapter 3. No one seeks God. We're all in desperate trouble. We're all in major difficulties. Our predicament is terrible. What happens to us as we listen to God's book? We find out what we're really like. The Bible is a mirror to show us the evil of our hearts, that we do not live up to the standard of the Lord Jesus. Luke 10 and verse 27. Luke 10, 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. Instead, what does Paul tell us? Lots of children know this verse, don't they? Romans 3:23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The words fall short are not something that's just happened in the past. 
You know when you're a little boy or a little girl you started not keeping up to God's standards. You started to go your own way. That's not what Paul's saying. The words fall short are in the present and continuous tense. Paul is saying that day by day, Tom Radford and everybody in this building keep on and on falling short of what God wants in their lives. Paul is insisting that sin is just not an event in the past. It's a reality of the present life that we all know all too well. We are destitute of perfection. If I asked everybody to stand and stay standing if you're perfect, what would happen? Gradually everybody would sit if they're honest with themselves. We're all destitute of the perfect standard that God requires. We're all in great need, like that family marooned in a communication black hole. That mobile phone won't work. They can't get in touch with anybody. Jesus reinforces this, he says in Matthew 7, and he's talking to his disciples. Matthew 7 and verse 1, and he's arguing why they should pray and ask for the Holy Spirit. He says, you then who are evil. He's talking to his disciples. You then who are evil. Matthew 7 and verse 11. Remember how John explains this critical point. John is the apostle of love, but he loves those people he's writing to. 1 John 1 and verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, we are tricking ourselves, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We are destitute of God, unless he comes to us and helps us. This is what stops our back chat with God. Verse 19, your mouth is silenced. You're no longer full of self-defense and self-justification. I ask this morning, have you stopped speaking back to God? Are you silent in the presence of God? Romans 3 is the court scene, and you are with God the judge, the God who has made you, and has made you a special person, unique in the whole wide world and in all of history, you yourself. He's made you special and he shows you in the mirror of the Bible that you've failed and that you're guilty in your lack of love to your neighbour and that you're guilty in lack of love to God himself. Have you given up arguing against the verdict of God's apostle, Paul? Or are you still answering back? Uh, surely I've done this and I've done this and I've done this and I've done this and I've done that. No. No. I, I'm not as bad as all that. It was a rock song when I was a teenager. No matter how bad you are, there's always somebody badder. You can find somebody worse than yourself all too easily. But that's not what God's interested in. God is interested in you yourself and the opportunities you've had to know and please him and where you stand with him, and what you've been doing with what he's given you, and the mind that he's given you, and the opportunities to grow and to know him. God puts this matter all too plainly, verse 11. Romans 3, verse 11. No one seeks God. The truth of the Bible is to silence everybody's mouth so that they'll listen to the gospel. It's not good news if you don't need it. 
If these guys didn't realize that they were marooned in a dreadful problem, they wouldn't want the good news of Tom Wagner coming in to find them. What then is the right response? you just got to reach that point where you admit it's true. I have nothing to say. I give up. I give in. My case is one of being totally lost. But don't just look for a clean-up. Where would you be if you were about to die? If you were to die in the next few minutes, what would you think of? What would you do? There would be no time to get better. You would be in the same position as that dying thief on the cross alongside the Lord Jesus. What then? You must start with your relationship with God. That is the first trouble. That is the biggest problem. You're a guilty sinner in the presence of God. It is guilt that must be dealt with first. And that takes me to the most amazing thing of all. Here in this literal letter that Paul wrote to Roman Christians back in the first century, he tells us about the most tremendous thing. It's an all-important Bible word. It's the word propitiation. You're saying, not a word like that, a word that I'll never be able to understand. It's very easy to understand. It's a technical word that you do need to understand. In any field of learning anything, you need a few technical phrases. You watch me trying to fix something and you would laugh. I have no idea about fixing things in the house. My wife can mix cement. She reads a handyman's magazine. And she talks to people. She finds out things that John has told my son. You need to know technical terms when you go to Bunnings. You can't just say, I want a something or other. When you go to God and you tell him about this wonderful, wonderful thing that he has told you, he loves to hear about it. It's this word propitiation. It's in chapter 3 and verse 25. God presented him, that's God the Father, presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement, a propitiation. What is it? God is upset and God is angry. He has every reason to be angry. People have blown it. He shows that the hypocrite is there in chapter 2. He shows that the pagan is there in chapter 1. And he shows that we are all there in chapter 3. We have blown it. We don't want him. And he wants to fix things up. And he has fixed things up. The word propitiation can't be watered down. God's wrath or God's anger is not like ours where we become easily out of control. This is not like the bad temper of Poseidon, of the Greek legends. Poseidon had to be appeased or what would happen, the ship would be all full of water and down it would go. You had to appease Poseidon all the time. What does God do when he gets upset? What has God done because he is upset? Humans propitiate their gods by bribes. In Christianity, God organizes things so that he propitiates himself. He himself becomes the peacemaker. God presented him, that's the Lord Jesus, as a propitiation, as a peacemaker. 
were a peace child. God himself takes the initiative in quenching his own anger against people like you and me. How is this possible? Verse 25, God presented him, that's the Lord Jesus, as a propitiation. There is this doom or this curse that the Lord Jesus took in those hours of darkness on the cross. Matthew 27 verse 46. Matthew 27 46. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Galatians 3 and verse 13 explains. Galatians 3.13 Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus took the doom and the terror that you observed. Why? Because God had this plan. And God put this plan into action. John 3.16 For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son. Why? To propitiate his own wrath. To make peace with himself. This is the penalty for your wrongdoing. On the cross, Jesus loses all sense of physical, mental and spiritual well-being. On the cross, the Lord Jesus loses all enjoyment of the Father and all created things. On the cross, Jesus loses all ease and comfort of friendship. Instead of good, Jesus takes nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice, and a horror and a terror of spiritual darkness. Jesus' main suffering is emotional. What is packed into less than 400 minutes is an eternity of agony. People who have emotional suffering, they know and understand that each minute is like an eternity itself. In ordinary life, we never notice how much good we enjoy until that good is taken from us. We never value our health much, or our good circumstances much, or our friendships much, or the respect from others much, until these great things are taken from us. The cross shows us that nothing that Jesus could call good stays with him when he becomes the propitiation, the doomed one, in your place. You read your Old Testament, you find out the tree is a place of doom when people are hung on a tree. That's where Jesus is. How can God forgive and still remain God? The cross is God's own vindication of himself. Verse 26. He, that's God, did this, this presentation of Jesus as the propitiation, he did it to demonstrate his justice. God stays just and yet forgives people like us. The doom of Jesus on the cross not only sets us free. How wonderful that is. The cross also vindicates God. Propitiation makes it perfectly clear that God takes sin very, very, very seriously. 1 John 4 verse 10, you have the same word. 1 John 4 verse 10, this is love. Not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. This doom of Jesus puts the spotlight on the marvel of the extravagant love of God. This guy, you can see him in the tiny picture down here in the corner. Tom Wagner goes in to find those people who marooned. The extravagant love of God is that he goes where we are, comes right where we are and finds us. Where we are is where the Lord Jesus found himself. We are doomed. We're in a place of terror, a place of desperate need and hunger. This is the extravagant love of God. There never is a love like the Father has for his Son, yet God gives his Son up 
unreservedly to the terrible doom of the cross. God appeases his own holy anger so that you and millions of other people are released from sin and guilt and eternal hell. Well, as I conclude this morning, we find ourselves thousands and thousands of times more helpless and hopeless than Stephen, Ethan and Tim. How absolutely hopeless is the condition of those who reject or despise the propitiation. There is no pardon for sin unless you come to the foot of that cross and you say to the Lord, I'm sorry, I should be up there, but you've taken it from me. You've paid the ransom. Be warned to come before it's too late. The very same Jesus who hung in the darkness and doom is here now. And he pleads with you to trust all your sin and all its penalties to him. And never stop asking him for the rest of your life what we read in Psalm 17 at the beginning of our service today. Psalm 17 and verse 7. Psalm 17, 7. Show the wonder of your great love. You who save by your right hand those who take refuge in you. Remember, God's love is an everlasting love. There never was a time when he didn't love. He had a plan all along for you. His love is a realistic love. He knows the worst about you and all the times you've blown it. His love is a rescuing or saving love. He himself is the propitiation, the sacrifice of atonement. His love is a costly love. He took your terror and your doom. His love is a transforming love. The spirit of the Lord Jesus himself enters into your life and the the Holy Spirit turns you from your sin and helps you to live a disgraceful life. No, a life that is different, a life that is attractive, a life that is worthwhile, a life that is fulfilling. And his love, Galatians 2 and verse 20, is a personal love. Galatians 2.20, the Son of God loved me and gave himself, for the personal pronoun, for me. Let's speak with him together. Let's speak with the Son of God together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were up on that cross for our doom and took our doom and the terror that was involved and that you paid completely and that we have your love instead today, the love of welcome, the love of adoption, that we belong in your family and despite the fact that we go on sinning against you, you treat us as princesses and princes in your family, brothers and sisters in yourself. And you equip us to do all kinds of worthwhile things in our lives, in our families, in our neighborhood, in our nation, and even at your throne in prayer now. That you've made us for yourself. We thank you, Lord God, with all our hearts that we have your very words to prove all this. What privilege is ours? We delight ourselves in yourself now and praise you for our immense privilege not only to know you and to have been spoken to by yourself but to be assured of your love that Lord Jesus you become our substitute 
and that you're here with us this morning and that you'll be here with us wherever we go. Our confidence is in yourself as we praise you and give thanks in your holy name, the name of Jesus. Amen.